to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. I want to talk to you today about a subject that is so serious that there really is no way to understate its importance. The future of America, our country, our home, hangs in the balance and it will be the American people who decide which way it goes. It's simple, really. The choice facing Americans in less than two months is stark. We can choose order or we can choose chaos, law and order, or riots in our streets. It isn't a coincidence that almost all of the cities that are having riots, looting, and gun violence on their city streets are cities that are run by regressive left-wing Democrats. Where this isn't the case, like in Oklahoma City, the riots ended quickly. But in the cities where they are allowed to continue without interference from police, the damage to buildings, to livelihoods, and to lives was enormous. And it may never be made whole. The operative word here is allowed, that they were allowed to continue. Because the powers that be in nearly all the cities under attack are Democrats. For reasons that I may never understand, they not only do not interfere with the violence, they allow, enable, and even encourage it. They tell the police to stand down. They disempower them. They defund them. And the violence continues to spread, and it gets worse. Make no mistake about it, my friends. There is big money behind these riots. And I'm not just talking about the millions of dollars that, is, that are being provided to groups like Black Lives Matter and Antifa. I'm talking about the people with deep pockets who consider that money petty cash, those millions of dollars. That money falls under the category of miscellaneous on their spreadsheets. These people are paying for agitators, anarchists, and criminals to get on planes and buses and travel to targeted cities to create havoc, to loot, and to destroy. They're buying anarchy. In one city alone, out of 170 people who were arrested for rioting and looting and other things, 102 of them were from other places. They had traveled to get there to riot. And the funders themselves, they're cowards. They hide behind not-for-profit organizations, and the money flows from one organization to another until it reaches its destination in the hands of rioters. We don't know all their names, but they are known as the globalists, the believers in the new world order, where people like them aim to have the power over people like us. I know it sounds like conspiracy theory, but as these riots in once beautiful cities expose the dirty underbelly of so-called progressive politics, we are facing a perfect storm of destruction. And if we don't stop it, it's going to tear our country apart from the inside. 
This is an insurrection. It's a revolt against democracy led by anarchists, Marxists, and socialists, funded by the uber-rich to change the balance of power, and followed by generations of children who were anesthetized by teachers who taught them about gender equality and how showing up was better than competing and just as worthy of a prize. These kids were taught that they were entitled to things that they hadn't earned, And what they were not taught was history and political science. They were not exposed to the classical literature or music or art. And most important, they were not taught how to think critically. They were only taught to believe their entitlement in a world that, for them, was cruel and unfair. And now these brainwashed children are grown and rioting in our streets, tearing down history, denying the greatness of the country they live in, and believing the lies of the anarchists and the socialists. They never learned history, so they don't know that socialism has never worked wherever it has been tried, or that under socialism, it is the people who have suffered the most, while the rich and the powerful stayed rich and more powerful than ever. Somehow, for these uneducated but passionate followers of what they believe is a righteous quest for social justice, the path of socialism, in their eyes, will lead to racial justice and some kind of mythical society that is free of financial inequality. It won't but they will only find that out after the damage has been done, irrevocably. And the nation of our forefathers, created with their dreams and ingenuity and tireless effort, will be gone. Today, my friends, we are living in the middle of a perfect storm. The combination of a deadly and frightening pandemic the proliferating riots in our streets, and a presidential election that is more hotly contested than any in recent memory. This perfect storm is the petri dish for the unrest that is challenging our country today. It's something that we must take very, very seriously. There is an answer to this bedlam, this lawlessness, It's called the Insurrection Act of 1807. It was signed into law by President Thomas Jefferson, and it gives the president the authority to federalize the National Guard in every place where violence has escalated to the point where the constitutional rights of the American people are jeopardized, are put at risk. Quote, Whenever the president considers that unlawful obstructions, combinations, or assemblage, or rebellion against the authority of the United States make it impracticable to enforce the laws of the United States in any state by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings, he may call in federal service such of the militia of any state and use such armed forces as he considers necessary to enforce those laws 
or to suppress the rebellion. Unquote. This act was used several times by several presidents. In 1957, President Dwight D. Eisenhower used it in Little Rock, Arkansas, when Governor Arvel Faubus defied a court order to integrate the public schools and ordered the state's National Guard to surround Little Rock Central High School in order to prevent nine black students from entering the school. Imagine. The Supreme Court had ruled in Brown v. Board of Education that the segregation of schools was unconstitutional, and a federal judge in Arkansas had also mandated that the schools in Arkansas must be integrated. But on September 4, 1957, when nine black students who became known as the Little Rock Nine began their lonely and no doubt terrifying walk to school that day, they had to walk through an angry mob of screaming, heckling, spitting people, and when they got to school, the National Guard, which was surrounding the school at the, on the orders of Governor Faubus, they prevented them from entering. This standoff went on for weeks, and the mob grew increasingly ugly. But then, on September 23rd, the president signed an executive order that federalized the Arkansas National Guard, and he sent a 1,000 U.S. Army troops from the 101st Airborne Division to maintain order and to enforce the Supreme Court ruling to desegregate the schools. President Eisenhower said, quote, Mob rule cannot be allowed to override the decisions of the courts, unquote. On September 25th, the Little Rock Nine, supported and protected from the mob by the soldiers of the 101st Airborne Division, attended their first day of class at Little Rock's Central High School. The Insurrection Act was used twice by President John Kennedy when he sent federal troops to Mississippi and Alabama to enforce civil rights laws. In 1967, President Lyndon B. Johnson also invoked the Insurrection Act. He did it twice, sending federal troops to Detroit to quell deadly riots that broke out between residents and police after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. And George H.W. Bush invoked the Insurrection Act in 1992 during the Los Angeles riots following the exoneration of police officers in the brutal beating of Rodney King. The six days of rioting in Los Angeles cost more than a billion dollars in damages and left 50 people dead. In this case, Governor Pete Wilson asked President Bush to intervene with federal troops to end the rioting that was spreading through the city. I was in Los Angeles that week and I saw the fires and the violence of the rioting and the rapid return to law and order once the troops came in. So there is a mechanism for President Trump to federalize the National Guard in order to put down the rioting. The Insurrection Act gives the president the right to do exactly that. But in today's climate, only weeks before a presidential election, there is an added calculation to be made. How has the president made the calculation not to federalize the troops without the request of the governor, 
of any of the states who are now experiencing the riots. What must he consider when he's deciding whether or not to send in the troops? You know, until the pandemic burst into our lives, President Trump had been doing a bang-up job. He was building the wall he promised. His economy was expanding rapidly, breaking all kinds of historical records. His efforts at tax reform had been successful. Unemployment was at record lows. Manufacturing had returned to the country with energy. And all in all, most of us were doing a lot better than we had in years. Then the pandemic hit and it hit hard. In many states, people were ordered to stay home. Schools were closed. Stores were closed. Many small businesses closed forever. And many people died. This was not like other viruses we've seen before. It was not a virus born in nature, for one thing. It was born in a bio lab in China. So our scientists had no way of knowing how it would react or how we would react to it. The instructions that came down from the United Nations World Health Organization and from the U.S. Center for Disease Control were inconsistent, they were contradictory, and they were sometimes just wrong. President Trump took the heat for his reliance on this continually changing and often inaccurate information. But these were sources that he trusted. And so the violence in our cities, where the confinement took its worst toll, exploded. And it provided an opportunity for people who wanted to change America and make it something different from what it is. The opportunity was there to activate the riots. So President Trump has a choice. He can wait out the riots until after the elections, since most of the Democrat governors refuse to ask for assistance. And in many cases, just like Governor Orville Faubus did in Arkansas, they're supporting the rioters. And the president can hope that the American people will be so angry at the ongoing riots in their cities that just don't stop that they will give him a win on election day. Or he can send in the troops now, with or without the request of the governors, and face the accusations of power abuse that are absolutely certain to come from the Democrats only weeks before the elections. So here's his choice. If President Trump wants to continue his work to revive America's economy and vitality as a world leader, he needs to have the next four years to finish the job. The better part of wisdom may therefore be to let the states take care of their cities, and if they persist in allowing and even enabling the riots to continue, well, then the American people may decide they've had enough. His actions so far seem to indicate that he has chosen the latter. This is less a political move than a pragmatic one, I think. If he wants to complete the work he started when he took office in January 2017, then he needs to win in November. If the elections are fair, and unfortunately there is good reason to believe they may not be, we are standing on a razor's edge either way. If we fall to the left and the Democrats win, the riots may stop, 
but we will still be facing changes in our country that can never be fixed, because we were never meant to become a socialist country. And if that should happen, we will never be able to go back. And if we fall to the right, we will have four more years of the Trump administration, and he will have four more years to fulfill his promises to the American people. But we may be facing more rioting and violence and division, all based on a never-Trump movement that will try to delegitimize his election. And we're likely to see more division, more violence than America has seen since the Civil War. And that violence and division may very well turn into another civil war. What will that look like? Well, that's exactly what we're going to talk about right after the break. So stay tuned. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. So what would a second civil war look like today? It wouldn't look much like the first one because the divisions this time would not be geographic. Instead, it would encompass loosely defined pockets of left and right throughout the entire country. In places where the left has had a stronghold for decades, those would be the blue side. Oregon, Washington State, and Minnesota, for example, and cities like San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, Oregon, Chicago, and even Washington, D.C. Those would be the blue states and the blue cities on the blue side. And in places that are traditionally more conservative, like the heartland, Texas, West Virginia, and so forth, those would be the red side. But much of this new civil war would take place on the streets of cities and towns all over the country where informal armies of red and blue would fight each other with ever-changing rules. Even the image of this war is terrifying. The first civil war, the one that began in 1861, when the southern states seceded from the Union, that was between the North and the South. And its origins were both economic and ideological. The issue of slavery as a moral sin was foremost in the minds of those who were determined to abolish it. A new civil war in the 21st century would create havoc in every place it broke out. Now before I go on, I wanted to let you know about two authors who have covered this area of future American history quite well. The first, author Kurt Schlichter, wrote a series of books, works of fiction, but with elements of prescience about what the country would look like after a civil war between the left and the right. 
The author is a retired Army colonel who has a legal degree from the Army War College. In his books, Schlichter described an America after the Second Civil War. The country is now divided between blue states, which he calls the People's Republic of North America, and the red states, the United States. In the red states, there is order and the discipline of the Constitution is still in place. But in the blue states, he shows the politically correct police, the corrupt, the very corrupt politicians, and an impoverished and neglected public just barely holding on. His books, People's Republic, Indian Country, and Collapse, reflect a view of one logical outcome of the stark ideological divide that is now destroying America. Another view of what America would be like after a catastrophic economic collapse of American civilization, which would be the next step following a sharp turn to the left, is a book called Wolf and Iron by Gordon R. Dixon. This is a story about what one man has to do to survive in a world where the norms that we have become so used to are no longer there. The reason I mention these books is that the outcome of the November elections is going to mark the future of this country, no matter who is elected. And if the election leads to the failure of America as we know it, we will be facing a very dark future. That is why we say that this election is going to be the most important election in our lifetime. We used to say, you know, that it didn't matter which party you voted for because they're really both the same. Well, they're not anymore. A win by the Biden-Harris ticket may well lead to the collapse of the United States as we know it. Under Biden-Harris, higher taxes, imposed single-payer health care with no choice for the individual, rigid and costly environmental requirements on our cities and our industries and our homes, tight government control of our schools and what they teach our children, liberal handouts to illegal residents, and ultimately, absolute control of our lives. We've seen it before. We saw it in the old Soviet Union. And much more recently, we saw it in Venezuela, where Venezuela used to be the most affluent country in South America. In the course of a few decades, it has become the poorest. And that is what we're facing if we buy into the socialist dream that Joe Biden and the Democrats are trying to convince us is the way to go. But here's the thing. Obamacare, the New Green Deal, Medicare for All, all these programs are extremely costly in the many trillions of dollars for each one. In fact, the New Green Deal, the brainchild of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that one program is estimated to cost at least, at least $100 trillion, nearly four times our national debt today. And who do you think is going to pay for all this? We are, with higher taxes, much higher taxes. Implementation of these programs will ultimately lead to the collapse of our national economy. 
unrest and violence will be the certain result of such a drastic program. And without private sector input and action, without a free and open economic engine, the economy will be on the fast track to implosion. So we're looking at two scenarios that are interrelated. The possibility of a civil war between the right and the left if Donald Trump wins the re-election, and the possibility of total economic collapse if Biden-Harris wins the election. We used to say that it didn't really matter which party you voted for because they were both pretty much the same. But it's not like that anymore. Since the 2000 election between Al Gore and George W. Bush, when the race was decided by less than 1,800 votes in Florida, the Democrats have been unwilling to accept a Republican win and have done everything possible to invalidate the election results. Back then, the Democrats claimed that Bush had stolen the election. At the time, we thought that was what we used to call sour grapes. But that has become far more than a catchphrase. Challenging the winner is no longer sour grapes. It has become an election strategy. Hillary Clinton is still blaming her loss on everything but her lackluster campaign. And Stacey Abrams still thinks she is the rightful governor of Georgia, although she lost her election by 50,000 votes. But this year's election is likely to have an even worse outcome because two things are happening right now that will make America an even scarier place than it is now. If you live in any of the cities that we've been talking about, in New York City or Seattle or Portland or Chicago, then you may already know what I'm talking about. Because the first thing that is happening is that the cities have been allowed to devolve into the chaos that is so bad that crime goes unpunished and criminals run free. And that becomes intolerable for the people who live there. In New York, even if a guy is caught and arrested for a violent crime, the new no-cash bail law runs him through the paperwork and then releases him back on the street. And then they hope that he'll show up for his hearing. This is what will destroy a city that was vibrant only a year ago. Whatever numbskull thought that this no-cash bail was a good idea didn't ask the 61-year-old woman who got punched in the head and knocked over by a thug on a bicycle who then just rode off. The good news is that a group of firefighters saw what happened, ran after the guy, caught him, held him down until the police arrived. The bad news is that he was arrested, booked, and then released back onto the street with the no-cash bail back onto the street to do it all over again if he likes. This is life in the big city today. People are afraid to go out of their homes and they're moving away in droves. We've talked about that a lot. So that is the first thing that's happening. The second thing that is happening is that the Democrats who run these cities are blaming it all on Donald Trump. Isn't it ironic that nearly all the cities where riots have happened are run by Democrats, who not only allow the rioting and destruction and violent crime to continue, they're enabling it. 
they're even supporting it. And then they're blaming it on Donald Trump. And how about this? Even when the mob turns on the city leaders themselves, as they did with Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, he continues to enable them anyway. And in fact, he just introduced a new ban on facial recognition technology to protect the identity of rioters on the street. It's unbelievable. It's beyond understanding. And Trump's to blame. So what Antifa and the people who support the riots in our cities are promising now is that if Biden is not elected, it will get a lot worse. They warn us that the streets will explode with violence and rioting and that it will spread from city to city to city. So that, my friends, is what we may be up against. And there's more. Because the push for mail-in ballots has created a situation that may overwhelm the vote-counting process in precincts all around the country. And the mail-in ballots may not even be received until several days after the election. That means that we may not know the official results of the election until weeks or even months afterwards. Now, by law, the votes must be certified by December 14th, but it is doubtful that the final results will be in by then. So this election year will be historic in many ways. It is likely that we will not know the results of the election, not on election night or on any night or day immediately afterwards. And Joe Biden has been warned by Hillary Clinton, no less, not to concede for any reason. Not ever, as far as I can tell. Better, I suppose, in her eyes, to keep America guessing forever. Honestly, I can't understand why the Democrats are so intent on destroying America. And that is exactly what it looks like from where I sit. Now, we talked about high taxes. Joe Biden has told us he wants to raise taxes. In fact, he said that on day one, the first thing that he will do is cancel the Trump tax reforms that helped so many people get a leg up. And that's just the beginning because he wants to bring back Obamacare and force us all to enroll. That will be the end of private medical insurance and having the choice of the kind of coverage we want for ourselves and for our families. One thing you can bet on is that although the rest of us will have to sign up, the folks in Washington who make the laws that the rest of us have to live by, they'll have their own health insurance, just like they did when Obama required everyone else in the country without health insurance to sign on to his Obamacare plan or pay a fine, only they called it a tax. Same money, though. Now, the United States Senate just defeated a bill that would have provided some financial relief for people who had been on unemployment insurance. It would have given them an extra $300. It also would have provided another stimulus check for millions of Americans to help them through the continuing tough times that have been caused by COVID-19. The Republican-led bill needed 60 votes to pass, but they only received 52. The Democrats all voted against it.
The problem is that the Democrats want to do things that the Republicans don't want to do, like fund the cities that have allowed the riots to go on and on while the mayors want to defund the police. So the unemployment relief is on hold, and so are the second round of relief checks. The Democrats want more money, and they insist on funding the cities run by the Democrats, regardless of their role in perpetrating the riots. The big problem is that all of this is wrapped up in swamp politics, and it's really bad. Trump promised to clean up the swamp, and he's made a good start of it. But it's such a huge problem, and the end is nowhere in sight. Politics and power trump everything else, including the welfare of the American people. It's a very, very sad story, because while people are suffering from the riots and their consequences— from the rise in crime, from the loss of jobs, from the virus, from the need for food and the basics of survival, from the stay-at-home orders and the psychological damage that has been done to so many people. While all this is going on, the politicians are still playing politics. It's pathetic. And here's the thing. They're still getting their salaries that we are paying for. They don't have to worry about the bills and keeping the kids at home when there is no school. It's easy when you're a congressman or a senator. Not so much when you're just an average guy with a mortgage and kids to feed and no job. Well, Trump may step in to provide some relief unilaterally with an executive action because Congress can't seem to get their act together and the American people are still suffering. The president says he's considering it, and I think it's a good idea. When Congress fails to do its job, when the people of America are suffering because the leaders of Congress are so intent on making their point that they can't get the job they were elected to do done, then they need to be overruled, if it is at all legally and constitutionally possible, so that the urgent needs of the people can be met. Let's see what happens next in this unfolding drama that the Washington elite are so good at. So getting back to the election, this one's going to be one for the history books. There's no real way of knowing for sure how it's going to turn out. In the last elections, the consensus of polls had Hillary winning by a landslide. But she didn't win in a landslide. In the end, she didn't win at all. The polls were wrong. Simply that. So why should we believe them now, even when they show that Trump is closing the gap on Biden? The polls, as we found out in 2016, are unreliable at best and completely misleading. How many people take polls and spin their answers, or just plain lie? And how many of the polls design the questions to elicit the answers they're looking for in order to influence the poll in a certain direction. It doesn't really matter whether the polls favor Donald Trump or Joe Biden, because they may be wrong no matter whom they favor. It certainly happened in 2016, and it certainly could happen again. I'd rather ignore the polls and do my own homework and make my own decisions. Now, right after the break, We're going to continue this 
because uh, there are a couple more things that I think are really important. And then, and then I want to tell you about a new hope for Middle East peace. It's awesome. As we say, let the silent voices be heard. Shadow Bannon, editing, censorship, blocking, and adherence to political correctness are seen as serious threats to our God-given right of free speech. Suppressing free speech, the very cornerstone of our society, is not in the best interest of our listeners, readers, and those who provide our content. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Now, before the break, we were talking about polls and how unreliable they are. I don't even answer polls anymore because I keep feeling that maybe they're going to get me to say something I really don't want to say, or alternatively, that they're going to misuse the information that I give them. But I remember one poll in the last election that was really the convincer for me of why I really don't want to answer these things. One of the last questions that they asked me in this poll was this. It started off, Don't you think, well, any question that starts off with don't you think is already suspect. They're trying to bias the results. But never mind. The pollster asked me, don't you think that Donald Trump's wild statements and name calling make him an inappropriate choice for president? Really? If that's not a leading question, I don't know what is. Polls are supposed to be objective. This was anything but objective. Never mind. I don't actually know what the next question was because I hung up at that point and I never finished taking the poll and I never took another one. But it just goes to show that not all polls are either fair or accurate or even intelligent because the questions that they ask, the way they are phrased, and the order in which they ask them, all have an impact on the final result. And the audience that they select to take the polls also make a difference in the outcome. So let me ask you a question. Can you explain to me why so many people, according to the polls, 
are supporting a man who is running for the toughest and most demanding job in the world, and yet who appears to be suffering from some sort of cognitive degeneration. I don't understand that. Can you hate somebody, in this case Donald Trump, so much that you will vote for a man who appears to be frail and disoriented, who would likely be unable to meet the demands of the office even at the very beginning of his term? I don't fault Biden for what appears to be his diminished capacity or for looking more frail than ever. People age differently, and it looks very much like his is the story of someone who was aging more quickly than others. He is 78. I know people who are much older than he is, and they are physically active and intellectually vibrant. But that's not Joe. And the people behind him seem to have an agenda that, in his younger days, Joe might never have accepted. But today he appears to be their puppet. And while he makes his occasional appearances and utters his all-too-frequent gaffes, the machinations behind the scenes are ominous because they look like they're preparing for a strong socialist agenda that will overwhelm him and push him aside after he takes office. That's a cynical plan, but there is every indication that this is exactly what's going on behind the scenes. And while this is going on, Kamala Harris is being groomed to be the first woman president of the United States. Kamala Harris is not suffering from cognitive decline, but she is very far to the left, and she supports everything from the riots in our streets to single-payer insurance to the Green New Deal to Medicare for All, programs that are so expensive that they will ultimately destroy our economy and turn the U.S. into a third-world country. There's no economist worth his salt who doesn't see this coming like a freight train hurtling down the tracks. If Biden-Harris are elected and they carry out their program that they've been promoting, we're all in for a bumpy ride. And the funny thing, or rather it's sad, is that the people on top of the Democrat pyramid who are supporting this socialist program who want to take control of our lives and impoverish us with ever-increasing taxes and regulatory mandates, these people are wealthy. Nancy Pelosi in her gated community is a multimillionaire. So is Kamala Harris. So is Joe Biden and the rest of them. And this is why this election is so important, why it is the most important election in generations, because it is the choice between liberty and tyranny, the freedom to live our lives and make our own choices, or the tyranny of a government that wants to make our choices for us and spend us into poverty. It is the choice between a party that denies us assistance in times of great duress and a president who wants to give us relief until the times improve. It's the choice we face on November 3rd. Let's hope that we make the right choice and preserve America as we have known it, as our forefathers wanted it to be when they wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. 
that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Amen to that. Now, moving on to a totally different subject. Last week, I talked about the new normalization between the United Arab Emirates and Israel. And I told you that this may be the beginning of a new era of cooperation in the Middle East. Well, this week, the dominoes already began to fall as first countries began to take the first steps toward normalizing new relationships with Israel. On Friday, September 4th, President Donald Trump announced that Serbia and Kosovo have agreed to normalize economic ties, and both countries announced their intention to establish their embassies in Jerusalem. Now, a problem arose shortly afterwards that Serbia would not put its embassy in Jerusalem if Kosovo was going to have one there. Well, that's a little different kind of a problem. But the fact that they both announced was already a huge step forward. This is a part of the U.S.-brokered economic normalization agreements that President Trump has been spearheading following his unsuccessful bid to forge a peace treaty between Israel and the Palestinians. And this latest announcement is groundbreaking. Kosovo, if it comes to Jerusalem, will be the first Muslim country to open an embassy there. And then, on September 11th, President Trump announced another deal, this one between Bahrain and Israel, another Muslim country. And then, the president of Malawi in southeastern Africa gave a state-of-the-nation address to the Malawian parliament, and he announced that his plan is to open an embassy in Jerusalem. This, my friends, is historic. Right now, there are 89 foreign embassies in Israel. But until right now, only the U.S. and Guatemala have actually relocated their embassies in Israel's capital, Jerusalem. All the rest are in Tel Aviv. This is because since the founding of the State of Israel, the Muslim countries have always claimed that Jerusalem was their capital, even though Israel was created as the Jewish state and the Jews have a history there going back over 3,000 years, long before Mohammed lived and Islam became a religion about 1,300 years ago. But because Islam is the predominant religion in so many nations in the world today, their claims are taken very, very seriously. So nearly every country in the world refused to accept Jerusalem as Israel's capital, and they all put their embassies in Tel Aviv. Israel was the only country, in fact, the only country in the world where the capital is designated by the government was not recognized. The world chose to see Tel Aviv as Israel's capital. So when President Trump decided to honor a decades-old law, the Jerusalem Embassy Act, that was passed by Congress in 1995, and a promise made by a succession of U.S. presidents to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, which they then all refused to honor. President Trump acknowledged Israel's right to decide where its capital should be, and he announced that he would move our embassy from Tel Aviv 
to Jerusalem. So on May 13, 2018, the U.S. Embassy was officially moved to Jerusalem, and Donald Trump, President of the United States, recognized Jerusalem as Israel's true capital. Then he led a new effort to reach a peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians, and he took months to craft an agreement that he called the Deal of the Century. But Mahmoud Abbas, leader of the Palestinian Authority, refused to even read the document and turned down the effort completely, period. This gave the president the opportunity to reach out to Arab states in the region to create a new environment of normalization between the Arab nations of the Middle East and Israel. And the time was right. The one thing that nearly all countries of the region have in common is a common enemy, Iran. And a partnership with Israel, the country with one of the foremost militaries in the world, that should be a good thing for her neighbors as well. The first country to come on board was the United Arab Emirates. And on August 13th, the world learned that the UAE and Israel had reached an agreement. And that agreement was brokered by President Trump and his team. In fact, he was the one who announced it. They had agreed to a comprehensive normalization of relations between the two countries. This was a first for Israel. In its 72 years of existence, never before had this tiny country, no bigger than the state of Vermont, had the opportunity to successfully reach out to a Muslim country and craft an agreement that would open its borders on an equal and comprehensive basis. And never has Israel had such a champion as Donald Trump, who pushed for a peace agreement despite all the criticism and all the discouragement from an unfriendly press and many unfriendly politicians. So what is this agreement? How is it different from the two peace treaties Israel has had with Egypt and Jordan? And what does it hold for the future? This agreement is a first because this agreement calls for full normalization of relations between the two countries and encompasses not only diplomatic relations, but also commerce, technology, and communications, and so forth. According to this agreement, quote, opening direct ties between two of the Middle East's most dynamic societies and advanced economies will transform the region by spurring economic growth, enhancing technological innovation, and forging closer people-to-people relations, unquote. That's a big deal, because in the past, the only commerce that existed between Israel and its Arab neighbors was done in secret. I've talked about that before, and I showed how it was done. But this, this is a new relationship in which Israel and her Arab neighbors, in this case the United Arab Emirates, carry on their commerce and their tourism and their technological development in the open as equal partners. It goes on to say, at the request of President Trump and with the support of the UAE, Israel has agreed to suspend its intention to declare sovereignty over areas of the West Bank. And instead, Israel promises to focus its efforts on expanding ties with other countries in the Arab and Muslim world. In addition, one paragraph stood out that brought the current COVID-19 crisis into high relief. The agreement says this, 
Quote, the UAE and Israel will immediately expand and accelerate cooperation regarding the treatment of and the development of a vaccine for the coronavirus. Working together, their efforts will help save Muslim, Jewish, and Christian lives throughout the region. Unquote. The vision of this agreement went far beyond just an agreement between two former enemies. The document says, and this is really an important piece, quote, Israel and the United Arab Emirates will join with the United States to launch a strategic agenda for the Middle East to expand diplomatic, trade, and security cooperation. The United States, Israel, and the UAE share a similar outlook regarding the threats and opportunities in the region, as well as shared commitment to promoting stability through diplomatic engagement, increased economic integration, and closer security coordination. Unquote. Well, those are fine words, and the big question is, will it last? But you know, this is the first really positive sign in a very long time, and it looks good, it looks strong. So, I'm optimistic. Now, in order to understand the possible future of this agreement leading to others, and leading to a more peaceful situation in the Middle East, we really have to go back to the elections here in the United States. Because if Trump is not elected for a second term, his support of this agreement is going to be undermined by the new administration, without a doubt, because their commitment to Israel is quite different from his. Their commitment to Israel is minimal, and to peace in the Middle East, it's minimal. We saw that in the Obama administration, and it's likely to return in force. Biden did have something to say about this while he was on the campaign trail in his basement. He said, the coming together of Israel and Arab states builds on the efforts of multiple administrations to foster a broader Arab-Israeli opening, including the efforts of the Obama-Biden administration to build on the Arab peace initiative. Well, that's rubbish. Many presidents have tried to make peace in the Middle East. Jimmy Carter tried. Bill Clinton got as far as a handshake between PLO Yasser Arafat and Israeli Prime Minister Itzhak Rabin. They even got a Nobel Peace Prize, only there was never any peace. Yasser Arafat was a terrorist, and he didn't deserve to be in the same room with the Nobel Peace Prize. Then George H.W. Bush tried, and so did his son, George W. Bush, but they all failed. Barack Obama made no effort to achieve a peace deal at all, but Joe Biden tried to take credit for it anyway. Biden had the decency, though, to praise the, quote, welcome, brave, and badly needed act of statesmanship. Then a big surprise came for the president after the announcement. A Norwegian lawmaker has nominated President Donald Trump for the Nobel Peace Prize for brokering the deal between the two former enemies. And if anyone deserves it, President Donald Trump certainly does. What is really amazing is that this is being done in the middle of a global pandemic, and it really is proof that life does go on no matter what. Well, we've come to the end of our hour, and I want to thank you very much for spending it with me. I hope you have a good week, a healthy week, a safe week, and I look forward to being with you again next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report.